You're listening to Life of the Record, classic albums told by the people who made them. My name is Dan Nordheim. L7 formed in Los Angeles, California in 1985 by Danita Sparks and Susie Gardner. Jennifer Finch joined on bass while Roy Kutsky played drums initially. Their self-titled debut album was released by Epitaph Records in 1988. Dee Plakas took over on drums as the band signed with Sub Pop and released Smell the Magic in 1990. The following year, L7 signed with Slash Records and began working on their next album with Butch Vig producing. Bricks Are Heavy was eventually released in 1992. In this episode, for the 30th anniversary, Donita Sparks looks back on how the album came together. This is The Making of Bricks Are Heavy. This is Danita Sparks of the band L7, and we're going to be discussing our 1992 album, Bricks Are Heavy. I think it was just a natural progression of us just getting better as songwriters. You know, when we were first out, we just wanted to barnstorm it, you know, and just be loud and brash and uh, aggressive. And our songs were good, but they, you know, like our Sub Pop album, we, we were getting pretty good. Our first album, we could have used a few more years as songwriters before we made our first album with, with Epitaph. But I just think that by the time we got to um, Bricks Are Heavy, we were progressing as songwriters. We liked our relationship with Sub Pop a lot, but we felt like we wanted to have a wider distribution. And it was sort of what all the bands were doing at the time, which was, you know, signing to a major label. You know, in fact, most of Sub Pop's roster split from, uh, from Sub Pop. But it wasn't because they were bad guys or doing a bad job or anything like that. It was just simply, it was, it was a natural next step for us. And it was not over money or anything like that. There was no bidding war about L7 at all. But we did find some like-minded people at Slash Records. And Slash, uh, LA legendary label, put out The Germs and X and Violent Femmes and The Blasters and stuff. And, um, you know, they were cool and they had just signed a deal with Warner Brothers for their distribution. So it was kind of like, wow, this is kind of best of both worlds for us, you know. So uh, we decided to to go for it. I had no problem going from the underground into the mainstream. I thought it was cool. I wanted to get our message out. I wanted to be an inspiration to kids who are stuck in the suburbs who were getting picked on and, you know, felt 
alienated and isolated. I liked getting on TV, on MTV, on David Letterman, whatever it was, just to, you know, hey, you're not alone out there. We were alone too. And, you know, that kind of thing. Some people just felt that major labels were corporate and they didn't like them and whatever. But, you know, I'm glad that the Beatles were on a major label. I'm glad I, I heard the Beatles. I'm glad I heard their message. I mean, what the fuck? You wouldn't hear The Doors. You wouldn't hear, you know, a lot of bands that had cool stuff to say. And, you know, the Rolling Stones, they were all on major labels. And even the underground cool bands, Blondie, all of them, they were on major labels. You know, the Ramones. I, I have no problem with that. So Butch, he had a great reputation with working with underground bands. And then when Nirvana worked with him, we had heard some tapes that came out. You know, we, we were friends with the Nirvana guys. We even went down to um, Sound City to visit them a couple times during their recording. And it was sounding great. And um, we just thought that Butch was our guy. You know, we had, we were we were basically following in the wake of Nirvana with that and uh we were lucky to meet Butch and he liked our stuff and we got along well as people. We spent, you know, I don't know, about 3 days at Sound City doing drums. Butch loved the drum sounds at Sound City. It's a huge drum room. So he wanted to do the drums there, which is what we did. And then we all went to uh, the frozen tundra of Madison, Wisconsin to do the overdubs. The band stayed in a house that Butch had rented for us. And that's where we stayed while we made The Rest of Bricks Are Heavy at Smart Studios. So um, Butch lived in Madison. His studio was in Madison. Yeah, we just uh, went there for financial reasons. We didn't have the budget to record it all at Sound City. When we were working on Bricks Are Heavy and Nirvana broke, which was like literally we were in the studio and in came a spin magazine and Nirvana were on the cover, you know, and it was just it was just super exciting. Like I didn't feel pressure. I felt, you know, really excited for them. And, and, and it was blowing our minds, you know, and Butch, it was blowing his mind, too, because it was a band he had just worked with and they were becoming the biggest thing since sliced bread. And it was unbelievable. He was getting a second shot at a music career because I mean, he, he was a successful producer in the underground, but this was like a whole different ballpark for him, you know? And so he was excited. We were excited for our friends and Nirvana. And uh, I think that the people working for Butch had, <laughs> had told them that, you know, we were going to be the next Nirvana, which is 
like really funny. Um, but you know, that's one of the reasons he took the gig because he really liked us. And, you know, there was buzz in the industry that like we could be as big as Nirvana or, or close to it or something like that. And so, uh, so that's just kind of funny. I didn't know that until years later, he told me that. I'm glad I didn't know that at the time because I think that I would have felt you know, more nervous or something. There's always a bit of nervousness in the studio, but that would have that would have freaked me out, I think. I, at the time, was listening to Plastic Ono Band's Sometime in New York City, I think is the name of it. And a friend of mine and I were really just really jamming on that record for a while and uh, really digging it. So I was like, oh, man, I'd love to sample Yoko for Wargasm because her vocals are so passionate and so um, just off the rails in expressiveness. And we reached out to her to see if we could use that. And she said yes. And then my management said, hey, Yoko Ono's going to call you. She wants to talk to you. And I was just like, what? I was like, oh, my God. You know, like, what am I going to say to Yoko Ono, you know? And um, she called me, and I was pretty nervous, and I didn't have much to say. And, and I said, I'm sorry, I'm not talking that much. I, I'm, I'm kind of nervous. And she was just very cool and very... Um, supportive of our band and what we were doing and and she had encouraging things to say and and it was cool getting the nod from her and um you know she liked the lyrics and she thought it was a cool song even beginning with um smell the magic we were getting a little more specific in our songwriting at, at least um i'm talking from my stuff anyway i was getting a bit more specific on who or what i was writing about it was going from kind of more abstract things that I thought I should be writing about, you know, to stuff I really wanted to write about. Wargasm was just something, you know, we were going to war with, uh, I guess it was Desert Storm. I don't know which one it was. It was like the first George Bush president was going to war. And so we were all of a sudden in war again. And it was like, what the fuck, you know? So that was based on that, you know, and, um, I didn't know that this country was in for like so many more decades of war. You know, it seemed like war was kind of a thing of the past when Vietnam ended, you know, and then all of a sudden we were in a war again. And it was like, oh, my God, what? You know, so that was very specific about it. But, you know, there are some humorous lines in there that are darkly humorous in a way. I enjoyed uh, being in Madison for Bricks, our heavy, and um, 
focusing on each part. I thought it was cool. And I thought it was helping me as a songwriter. And it was uh, letting me express, hey, I'm hearing this thing here. Like, in this part, I want to hear, I'm hearing this. Do you like that, Butch? And he'd be like, yeah, cool, let's try it, you know? And we had time to do a call and response, uh, you know, or do a come on, come on, come on, or do a, uh, you know, monster, monster in me, you know, that monster in me, the response was not written, you know, like, we had time to like, hey, I, how about this? It sounds kind of catchy to respond to Susie, you know? So I liked being able to take that time and uh, not feel so pressured. Well, what's funny about when we were uh, doing Smell the Magic with Jack and Dino, uh, we were up in Seattle. We were crashed at a friend's house and we had a weekend. First, we were doing a Sub Pop Singles Club and we had a weekend to do that. You know, Jack is so loose I had a speaker broken on my amp that was rattling. I had like a two-speaker cabinet and one of the speakers was rattling and broken. And he was like, eh, sounds cool to me, you know? So it was just like, I had this like rattling thing and it just didn't, he did not care. You know, part of that whole scene is just punk in the sense of like, just plug it in and go, you know? And then uh, Bricks Are Heavy, you know, you talk about like the polishedness of this record. It's funny because Butch is incredibly meticulous about being in tune. So much to the fact that he was using this very psychedelic op art thing that used to be standard in the industry called a strobe tuner. And that was the thing that was kind of the frustrating thing to me was because I was ready to record, you know, and he needed everything to be, every string at every point in the guitar that you were going to hit had to be completely in tune. So it was quite a feat for us to, <laughs> to be ready to track. And then if we ran through it a couple times, we'd have to do that all over again because he's just very particular about that. So that may add to his polished sound. I don't know. But like, I, you know, if something's a little out of tune for me these days, I'm just not that if it sounds okay, it sounds good, you know, but I think he was just thinking about all the layers that were going to be going on top of stuff and needed everything to like lock in. When I visited Nirvana, he was doing the same thing. So that's just his thing. He's, he's like super, super pro. <laughs> was written <laughs> when we were recording our very first album at Epitaph. Epitaph Records at the time was just a house in Hollywood, and it, it did have a garage, and there was a skinhead living in the garage. Brett Gerwitz was letting this kid, this skinhead who was huffing paint, in the garage. And so I just started writing a song about Scrap, who was living in my friend's garage, which is literally true. And Brett started contributing some lyrics too. And so we wrote it on the couch, 
you know, I wrote the music and Brett and I wrote the lyrics on the couch at Epitaph, I guess in probably 1987. And so it finally made the record in 1992. So, you know, sometimes you have older songs that get a new life when you've got a new record coming out. And so we always like that one. And it always surprises people that Scrap was really a person <laughs> that existed. And he did go to Vegas to find God. And he came back as, you know, and started huffing paint again. So that is truly the story of Scrap. I hope Scrap is still with us um, because he was a sweet kid. Uh, He was just, you know, he was just lost. On one side of my family, I have a very, very religious side of the family. Distant cousins or whatever, but I've seen that up close. So I think I was kind of referencing that a little bit too. Like the line... uh, Use revival meetings like an oxygen tent till your mind starts to gel, you know, because uh, the preacher thumps the Bible with the crazy beat, the funky dying brain cell. I was comparing the paint huffing to also the dying brain cells within that revival tent, you know what I mean? I hate telling this because I don't want to, I don't like to ruin stuff for people, you know, but in all actuality, the pretend we're dead part came from, uh, I was going through a breakup and it was devastating. And I just had to uh, tell myself, okay, I've just got to pretend that this person's dead. And it's not like I wanted that person dead. I was just like, it was the only way I could cope to stop like, uh, focusing on and obsessing over thinking about what this person was doing, you know? So it was like, okay, I just have to pretend they're dead. I just have to pretend they're dead for my own sanity. And I was like, huh, pretend they're dead. Hmm. I'm not going to write a song about that, but pretend we're dead. I like that. Pretend We're Dead, like a lot of my songs, (laughs) 
um, or like many of my songs. I don't think there's any chord changes in it. It's all right. The um, the chord progression is the same throughout the song. So the vocals change between. You know, the melody line changes between the verse and the chorus, but there's never a chord change. So, you know, so I had this cool sounding chord progression and I had the riff, you know, da 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 I had that and I had the chord progression. And um, usually with our with the way we write, we usually have the music first and then the lyrics are written to that. And so when we pretend that we're dead, and so that came into my head. And then, so I had the chorus and then I kind of wrote the, I was like, okay, pretend we're dead. That's like apathy, right? So like, okay, I'm going to write a song about apathy because that was another thing I was struggling with at the time because it was so frustrating because like a lot of people my age, they didn't even vote, you know? So it was just, and I've, I've always been raised to be kind of a bit of an activist and stuff. And it, it was just, it would frustrate me that, that, uh, people, you know, who I thought were really cool and stuff didn't even vote. And I thought it was like, what the fuck, man? That's like the least you can do, you know? So it was about apathy. Sometimes when I write, I write so quietly that it's not for me to project loudly. Like, you know, sometimes you write a song and it should have been in a higher key for you to really belt it out, you know. And it didn't really seem like this needed a shouting thing. And, you know, the vocal is kind of a little bit of a deadpan thing. There's not a screaming moment in it. There's not a it's just kind of, you know, in a way, it's sort of appropriate for a song about apathy. You know, it's it's a little bit of a deadpan, you know, but that was not intentional. It was really just the key it was in <laughs> and uh, the melody of the track. We would record and then I'd get a cassette to listen to at night back at the house. And I thought, oh, it'd be cool if, if D went, come on, come on, come on, come on. Because, you know, we loved Public Enemy and we loved, you know what I mean? And I think she actually, you know, the way she sang it was just very public enemy. It's just the way that it came out from her. That's definitely kind of a, a hip hop influence in there, which is kind of funny. Um, and we didn't mean it to be funny, but when I, I kind of chuckle at that when I hear that because it, it does sound kind of public enemy. And then also, you know, to do the call and response with Susie, you know, when we pretend that we're dead, pretend we're dead, you know, like, I thought it was cool to have a deadpan response to that very melodic, sing-songy chorus vocal.
if it's more pop, it's not Butch's fault <laughs> or uh, to Butch's credit that much. I mean, true, Butch did encourage us to to be hooky and melodic. And he definitely thought Pretend We're Dead was hooky. And he liked the title a lot. He thought it was evocative of a lot of things. He thought it was a cool title. He just, he liked it a lot. You know, sometimes it's kind of like, oh, you know, you know ahead of time, oh, hey, that might be a single or that might be, you know, and it doesn't always work out that way. But with this one, it did pretty much work out that way. Like it was the first thing he latched on to. But he gave each song on this record the loving attention that it deserved. And every song turned out cool. And a lot of them sound hooky and and poppy. And and I mean that in the best sense. You know, I love bubblegum. I love, I prefer catchier stuff than to really heavy, heavy stuff. You know, I, I mean, I like that too, but I've always had that that side, which I think I repressed a little bit. You know, another thing um, that's kind of interesting about Pretend We're Dead, Butch and I were just remastering it with Howie Weinberg, the guy who originally mastered it, because we're putting out a, a 30th anniversary of this album. But um, we were listening to Pretend We're Dead in the mastering studio, and I was like, it's so funny how the riff, the da 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 sounds like it's a, a synthesizer. But it was not a synthesizer. We just had so many pedals on it that it, it didn't even sound like a guitar anymore. It sounded fuzzed out, but also kind of synthed out. And it's just very funny because it, it is indeed a guitar. When we were recording Pretend We're Dead, we had fun with the outro. You know, we were like, how about if Susie plays a backward solo? That would be really cool, you know? And like playing a backward solo is much more difficult <laughs> than you think it is because first she had to write something that would sound good backwards and then learn how to play it backwards and then butch played it backward. You know what I mean? It's not that easy. You think George Harrison, it was a breeze, but it probably wasn't even a breeze for George Harrison or whoever whoever played backward solos. But um, yeah, so that's, we decided to get it like psychedelic sounding at the end with that backwards solo. You know, I, um, earlier in our career, <laughs> I did the cardinal sin of uh, shitting on the hit. And, uh, you know, don't shit on your hit because that song means a lot to a lot of people, you know, but like back in the day, like we used to have our roadie come out and start ironing or start vacuuming on the stage when on that outro solo, you know, because it was just like, you know, it was just the the grunge way to do things at the time was to like make fun of your hit because there was probably a bit of guilt, major label guilt over having a hit or some, you know, a punk rock response to having a hit, which is really stupid. But um, on our reunion tour, we do not shit on our hit and we play it with all the heart and soul that it deserves. Come on, come on, come on. Come on. Come on. 
it is a generational anthem for sure. And I can see it in the audience faces. And it's like, that's, we treat it with a lot of respect these days. A lot of the bands that came out of sub pop, you know, had this like, you know, tongue in cheekness about mainstream or, or that kind of stuff, you know? And so Nirvana did that shit too, you know? And, and it was all just kind of our way of having fun with this mind blowing place we were at in the mainstream all of a sudden. And it was like, oh my God, this is like ridiculous, you know? Uh, because stuff like MTV and getting on the radio was just so far-fetched for all of us, you know? And so we got into absurdity with some of our live shows, but now I treat things differently when we perform. It's much more for the audience as opposed to our own little insecurities about having a <laughs> about having a hit, you know. story about a country artist who told a story that he was abusing his wife and his wife hit him with a frying pan when he was sleeping. And I just thought that that was so amazing. And so I filled in these details that didn't really exist and um, named this person Victor. His name was not Victor. And I just, you know, the twins are in the car and I, and I painted a whole scenario of what <laughs> what that evening might have looked like with an abused person pushed to the brink of um, sewing their husband in, a, in the sheets and sewing him to the sheets and beating the fuck out of him with a frying pan and leaving him, you know? So I thought, I was like, okay, that's, this is a heavy one, you know? But then I always like to throw in like, you know, Calgon can't take me away. No, Calgon can't take me away. And people love that line, you know, because it's like, it's like a fuck you, you know, um, that's so, it's not just anger, it's just like flippantly funny too. Well, I dig the heaviness of it, and Susie digs the heaviness of it. Her leads on this really fit. They're very um, menacing. She did a great job with that. Well, you know, I've always been a feminist, and, I, you know, I don't like anybody being abused. And, you know, listen, I think a lot of fans and a lot of people in general have been abused or have witnessed abuse in their own homes. And, like, I think they can really get behind this song, you know, of, <laughs> like... 
the imagery of a person who can sew and who can cook with a frying pan, you know, it's very like, yes, it is this domestic situation, you know, uses the tools of her domestic responsibilities as her weapons. And that is cool. Jennifer Finch brought this song in, Everglade, and we liked it from the get-go. And um, she wrote this with a guy named Daniel Ray, who worked with the Ramones a lot. He was a friend of ours. We liked this song a lot. I play lead on this one. The way we've been playing it during the reunion, and even back in the day, we play it a little more stripped down. And if we're going to be performing this record front to back, I've got to learn a lot <laughs> A lot more parts on this for the intro in particular, what the lead guitar is doing on that. I, I kind of I kind of blew that off and got lazy with it and just and just stuck to the bar chords. But now I'm gonna have to fill in those gaps with um my own noodling at the top of that song. She brought it in, and I loved the subject matter, you know, uh, getting tossed around in the pit by guys that are um, being really full of elbows and, uh, <laughs> and strength, you know. And when you just want to watch a rock show or, you know, even if you want to join the pit, it gets too rough, you know, and it's not cool. And so this was her response to those kind of uh, situations because it did get rough at our shows and we'd have to stop a lot and tell the crowd to chill out. You're getting too, you know, knock it off because it would get crazy. resonates, I think, especially at a live show where people are in the audience. And I've experienced this. We've all experienced this uh, as being at rock concerts. And it gets, you know, the boys are pushing you aside to get to the front. And then you can't see over their tall bodies. And, and you know, they're getting, you're getting pushed around. And this gets very anthemic at our live shows in particular. Because, you know, again, it's not just girls getting pushed around. It's guys getting pushed around, too, who don't want to get 
crazy violent, you know? And so people like it. And also I think, um, you know, don't cross my line says Everglade is very, uh, you know, it's kind of reminiscent of shove, uh, from, um, smell the magic, which is just like, you know, lean up off, back the fuck off, you know? So it's like, don't cross my line says Everglade. And it gets very, uh, you know, it even transcends what it's about specifically being in the pit. It transcends to just a life, you know, going through life. Don't cross my line, you know? So I think that resonates. Susie and I had a riot writing uh, Slide because it's about our ex-lovers. And it's all true. Every line is true. And uh, we just had a blast writing this because uh, all those incidents actually happened. It was just really, really fun. You know, each line is about, you know, this person or that person. And people just can't believe, like, some of this stuff. But it's all true. You pissed in your, we had, we had a, uh, this was actually an ex-roommate of ours, a guy who would come home, he was a friend of ours, and he would um, pass out in the kitchen, piss himself while blasting Motorhead at like top volume. Like, you know, we'd get home from like being in a club and there would be so-and-so down on the floor in a puddle of his own piss with Motorhead blaring on repeat, you know, when you could make a, an album repeat again and again and again, you know, so the neighbors were like listening to Motorhead blasting at like two in the morning, you know, to this guy passed out in his own urine. But um, that was true. And uh, you splattered the bathroom with your hair dye. That was true. You stuck your cane right through my amp. That's true. All that stuff is true. cool like writing a song about stuff that was really upsetting like when so and so stuck the cane through my amp and broke my amp and was in a rage i was just like it was so upsetting it was so disturbing like oh, oh my god all of a sudden i'm in this domestic like angry situation you know but writing it it just it just lets go of all of the all of the scariness and it just becomes this hilarious thing which it is so, uh, yeah, and, and the actual incident was like, oh, I'm going to destroy something like that you, it wasn't like I loved the amp. I, I don't love my gear that much. It was like a little Marshall amp, you know, a little practice amp. But it was, 
it was like an attack on almost like who I identified as. An attack, it's something you love. It's like when a mean, mean, evil person, you know, shoots someone's dog to get at them or something, you know, it, it just felt really like hateful, you know, it was a hateful thing. Splattering the bathroom with your hair dye is not an attack. It's just somebody being a lunkhead. But the cane through the amp was an attack at who I identified as, you know, and it was just, it was nasty. But I like how songs and lyrics can transform really shitty things into really uh, cathartic things. And if you're lucky, they can turn into anthemic things. So that happens with us a lot. Jennifer brought this in. Uh, she brought in one more thing, and I loved it. I loved it for its simplicity. I think the recording of it is great, and I think her vocals are great on it. And uh, Susie plays, dear, near, 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 da, 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 da. And then I play the, um, I play the other little ditty, do, 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 do. And uh, who plays the lead on that? Damn it. I think Susie plays the lead. But yeah, I like this. And we worked on that, you know, the breakdown and kind of that muffled I kind of brought in that um, that muffled metal part on the rhythm guitars. So that, I think, helped give it a bit more dynamics on the arrangement. Yeah, and that one I like a lot. That's one of my favorites on the album. D is really good at um, getting it in like one, two or three takes. She's just really, she's really solid, you know. They would have D on a click track like at the beginning of the song and then just kind of take the click track off. So she could, she could build faster if she wanted to. So it was kind of like the metronome helped kicked her off for the, for the tempo that we were striving for. And then if she went off the click, they would just remove the click and like just let her play because she was she was adding um, dynamics, whether either speeding it up a little bit or slowing a section down or whatever. So we weren't that Pro Tools. I don't think we had Pro Tools then. You know, there, there wasn't as much stress for a click track as kind of sometimes there is these days.
this one, <laughs> it's funny because it was the way that we write usually, like I've said before, where the music comes first and then the lyrics come on top. But this one, I wrote Mr. Integrity in reverse. I had these lyrics inspired by a person who pissed me off at a party who kind of insulted a song that I had written, if you can fucking believe that. And I was so pissed. I was like, okay, fucker. And I wrote this song, <laughs> but this person said to me, oh, now you're on Slash. Maybe you can write more songs about cars. And I was just like, I didn't even know what he was fucking talking about, but I was like, in my mind, I was like, well, I like songs about cars and I like surf songs. And so I wrote this scathing, funny song about riding in a car with him through San Francisco to a surf beat. And that was my revenge at this, it, <laughs> this perceived insult from this person. And so uh, that's what it's about. I was in San Francisco when this person said this to me at, at a party. And so I just took it to writing this really cool surf car song about somebody pissing me off. And I like it very much. <laughs> I love Mr. Integrity. definitely um, an icon of the punk scene. And uh, some of those people, they either don't like people signing to majors or, you know, maybe there's a little jealousy that they're not signed to a major. I don't know why any artist would go up to someone and insult them. It's just ridiculous, you know? So it's like, I would never say anything like that to someone. As artists, I feel we should be supporting each other and um, encouraging each other because we're all insecure little kids at heart. And, you know, we need encouragement and not like, he was punching downwards, man. It was like, you're this big guy. Like, why are you, why are you picking on me kind of thing, you know? And so, but I turned it into gold and uh, got a great song out of it. One of my faves. It totally rocks. And, you know, I even threw bongos on there. It's like, fucking let's put some bongos on here, man. Like, let's really go for it. People that came up from our scene or whatever, uh, seeing them in magazines and stuff, it was cool. I felt like, I've always felt like I was in a community, you know? And I think I think maybe some other people didn't feel that, but I, I always felt it like, hey, this is cool. Like, we're all, can you believe it? Like, I mean, 
I would see White Zombie in a, in a magazine and I would be thrilled, you know? I'd see Soundgarden in a magazine and I'd be thrilled. It was like, wow, man, this is crazy. Like, we've all graduated into these massive publications and these, ma- you know, this massive exposure. I, I thought it was cool. I, n- I never had a problem with that, other than shitting on my hit. But uh, <laughs> the other things I didn't have a problem with, I, I liked seeing my friends, all of us, getting the exposure that was cool. Susie brought this in and, um, you know, had the riff. And the song starts out with that on bass. And people lovingly think that that's Jennifer's bass line, but it's actually the riff of the song. So Susie does indeed get the credit <laughs> for that riff. But, um, you know, we all loved Monster when it came in. And um, Susie writes a lot about her personal romantic relationships. And sometimes she does it incredibly well. And it's a topic that I steer away from um, because I don't think I'm very good at it, but Susie's good at it. That's her topic of lyric a lot. So Monster is, you know, somebody driving her crazy with passion, you know, brings out the monster in her. So. it's cool. I like that one a lot. It's got a great riff. In a world of disposable icons, and all the jokers with the phone come on. I know I can depend on you. When we're together, we're It's cool, too, because like Susie and I, our dynamic is like, I'll write a song and she'll put in a lead that's totally something I wasn't thinking of, but it's really great and it's different, you know, and I'm the same way. She'll write a song and I'll do a lead on top of it, which is something that she hadn't pictured at all, but it takes it to a different place and she loves it. So it's this kind of we complement each other a lot when it works. When it works, it's really good. I think that we didn't write as much as together on this record as we had in the past. Um, like I said, I think that we were both sort of growing confidence to write on our own. And also, uh, I think Susie had some personal stuff going on at the time. She actually just didn't write as much as I did for this, you know. So, But I think that she was um, preoccupied with a person that she was with. But I, I'm not exactly sure. Sh- you know, I know that... I was a bit more isolated myself, but in my isolation, I was writing a bit more, I think, than she was. I think in her isolation, she was with someone that was, you know, sucking up a lot of her um, headspace. But these two great songs came out of that. Monster, monster, bring out the monster. 
we play shit list, like, it's on. It's like, you know, that's a crowd pleaser for sure. It's just off the rails when we play that song live. Yeah, Shitlist, um, you know, another um, song of mine that has three or four chords and it doesn't change. <laughs> it's the same thing throughout the whole song, I'm pretty sure. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, and it's just a different melody for the verse and a different vocal melody for the verse and a different vocal melody for the chorus. I'm playing lead on it. It's a very simple song to play. And uh, I like that quality sometimes and it fits when you've got a you know when you're brewing up an anger anthem you know to keep it simple I didn't know it would, would be so anthemic when I wrote it, but um, I know that all the people that we were hanging out with at the time were really getting a kick out of it before it was released. You know, if they heard it, if they heard us playing live or, or whatever, it was getting uh, high praise from our dirtbag friends, lovable dirtbag friends, who were like, oh, shit, Liz, man, that's good, that's good, you know? So we had a feeling it would be a fan favorite. Unfortunately, and it is one of our biggest songs, it never got on the radio. So, you know, that's the curse. If you've got a really cool song, but it's got a swear word in it, it's not gonna get on the radio, at least the radio that was common back then. So uh, no video was made for it or whatever, but strangely uh, and amazingly, you know, in Natural Born Killers, Juliette Lewis does a, a fight scene, actually it's more like a kicking ass scene, to shitlist in that movie. So that almost works as a video. Even though I do not like violence at all, and I, you know, I'm not crazy about that being so associated with the song because it's it's so violent, but her performance is so great and so many people identify that song with that scene from the movie, and that's fine by me, you know, because uh, it is an amazing scene, but uh, for the record, I am against violence.
when I do jump the octave, it is insane. And uh, when I do it live, it's really insane because people don't think I can still do it, but I do it. And I probably do it even better than I did on that recording because my voice, you can hear my voice starting to rasp out right now, you know? And like when you're on tour for a bit, you know, even just after a show or two, your voice starts to get raspy, right? And so when I hit that with this rasp, it just sounds insane. And it's, uh, people are always kind of taken aback, especially people who have never seen L7 before. Like maybe people who are kind of new in my life, like new friends who, who were never really big rock fans or something, and they come to see L7. And when I hit that, <laughs> they kind of chuckle because it is so shocking. But I can usually pull it off, you know, knock on wood. And then we decided to close with a barnstormer as well, which is the same pleasure. So we kind of start and finish with two fast ones. In looking at the sequence, there are maybe some things I would have changed. I know we wanted to put Pretend We're Dead third uh, because that's usually, we didn't want to put it up top, you know, because we thought that that was probably going to be the first single. I probably might have put Diet Pill a little bit later because it is so slow and heavy. Who knows? But I think it does flow well, you know? So who am I to say, who am I to be a Monday morning quarterback on the sequence for this record? So I'm cool with it. This Ain't Pleasure has these different time signatures. And yeah, I, <laughs> this one, you know, I think because of the different time signatures, it was, you know, kind of piece by piece a little bit. D, of course, played through the whole thing. I think probably for some of the um, changing rhythm sections, we kind of recorded those separately. I'm not sure. I can't, I can't really remember the recording of this one and how it went down, but I, I would imagine that that's, kind of how we pulled it off at the time. We were really down to the line because it was approaching Christmas. And so everybody had to, we had to finish. And so by the end of our recording at Madison, we were using every <laughs> available closet and room uh, with different engineers finishing up all the overdubs, you know? So every corner of that studio was utilized just to finish.
we've never played this song live, uh, so this will be challenging <laughs> to work on for, you know, when we play the whole album to get that tight. But we can do it. We've done it before. Not a big deal. <laughs> this album, Bricks Are Heavy, is probably our career peak. Not that I think it's our musical peak, but it was definitely our career peak. And we were getting on TV and it was selling well and we were hot shit. And, um, <laughs> you know, it was uh, quite exciting and fun. We were loving it, you know, and we thought there'd be more of it. And then it wasn't. <laughs> it kind of, we kind of, uh, you know, plateaued at that space for a while career-wise and then started to go down. But um, uh, it was a great ride. This album means a lot to people. And so it's highly respected in our camp. We appreciate that this was a, um, a generational touchstone for a lot of people. And um, I'm super proud of that. And I think, man, when people tell you that an album helped you get through their horrible teeny bopper years or teenage years, it's like, oh my God, how great, you know? So we were even hearing from famous people who were, you know, shitless was their anthem about dealing with assholes, you know? So uh, it felt really great. Yeah, it was a great ride. I'm um, thrilled that Bricks Are Heavy is holding up for people and it's, it's holding up in the rock world. And that's unbelievable. It's amazing. And I'm so happy about that. And we're all proud of this record. You know, we're proud of all of our records, by the way, but this one really uh, sticks with a lot of people. And so even though it didn't make us gazillionaires or anywhere close, uh, it's, I'm happy that it's still up there in some people's minds. Visit lifeoftherecord.com for more information about L7. You'll also find a link to stream or purchase Bricks Are Heavy, including the recent 30th anniversary edition. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.